Our scripture reading for today is going to be 1 John 4, 7 through 19, which you would be able to find on page 863 if you're wanting to use the Pew Bible, or it should also be up behind me if you prefer to read it from the screen. And so 1 John 4, beginning in verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. There is, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love of We rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment, because in this world we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. At the beginning of our series in 1 John, we started with the question, what's love got to do with it? And I did my best to make sure that that got stuck in your heads with uh, Tina Turner's great anthem, um, and, and hopefully that's still coming back to mind because that's the question that John is answering. He's answering, what does love have to do with faith in Christ? And what I want to share with you today as we look here in chapter 4 is to understand that love is what sets Christianity apart from every other belief system. Not that other people don't love, don't, don't mishear, misunderstand what I'm saying, but love is absolutely central. Because uh, you see, in every other belief system, we are attempting, we are continually trying harder to please God. We do what we can so we think God will be impressed with us and will measure up to what he would want from us. However, Biblical Christianity requires instead that we trust in the love of God as he has shown it forth in his son, Jesus Christ. You see, love is absolutely central. Without God's love, Jesus would not have been sent. We would not have a savior. We would not be, have one to trust in. Christianity would just be a religion like any other but it is absolutely unique because you see Christianity, biblical Christianity is the only faith that was intended to be totally dependent on love as a motivating factor. 
as its force. And as a result, it also is the only one that allows us to really practice complete obedience because it's fueled not by duty, but by love. Now, have you ever thought about what the purpose of love is? Most of us just try to figure out, am I in love? Does this person love me? Do do they not love me anymore? But we never really think much about the purpose of love. And I believe there is a very important purpose. So I have a, um, unfortunately, I didn't, in my, my prop department is, is beginning to lack a little. I don't have that many good props anymore. You've seen most of them. And so I was hoping to have an oil lamp, but I didn't have one. So I have a very simple lantern here, okay? Beautiful as it is. It's, it's electric, as you can tell. Um, now, this lantern is designed to run on the power of fuel, in this case, batteries. But if you were to imagine, like, the, what you have on the screen a lantern that's lit by a flame, you understand that it's only as good, it's only as bright as the fuel that powers it. The same is true with our faith, but what is even more important, what's more true, is that what love is, it is the fuel upon which the glory of God burns. It is what radiates into our life and through our life to show us what God is like. Without love, Christianity falls apart. Biblical faith falls apart. Just like if you have, a, if you have an automobile, whether it's diesel or petrol or gas, um, I know two of those are the same, but it depends on where you're from. So if it doesn't have any fuel in it, it can only go as far and as fast as you can push it, which isn't very far and certainly isn't very fast, unless it's downhill. Um, And the same is true with our biblical faith. It has to be fueled, and the fuel God has given us is love. It is absolutely essential to everything that we do. Love shines forth the goodness and greatness of God, both to us, and then it is designed to be reflected and shown through us into the lives of others. So let's, let's take a look here for a moment at this passage. We're gonna begin in verse seven, as we did in the reading, And it says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. I want you to remember that little phrase. Those few little words are incredibly important. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not love, excuse me, does not know God because God is love. And what we have here is that John is is showing us the person of, of love, that love has a source, and its source is God Himself. The source flows from the love of God between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Their love for one another is the source; it is the the wellspring of all love that you ever experience. Whether you acknowledge God or not, that's where it comes from. It comes from that relationship, and God, in making us in His image has given us the capacity to love unlike anything else in all of creation. When we, when we look at the animal world, we recognize that, that a, you know, a bear will care for its cubs or, or a lion will care for its cubs. Um, but once the cub gets older, what does it do? You, know, you don't have multiple generations of lions 
and, um, and bears, especially bears, lions are more of a pack animal, so, but think of bears. Where we come from, there are lots and lots of bears. You know, they don't get together for family reunions. You know, they fight over, over food after they adult, or are adults. The cub gets kicked out and it's on its own. It has an affection for its cubs and the cub has an affection for its mother, but it's nothing like human relationship and human love. It's not sacrificial in the way God designed love to be that comes from his relationship as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When we say God is love, we are not saying everything about God. Love is an essential aspect of his character, and it colors every aspect of his nature. But it does not eliminate his holiness, his righteousness, his perfect justice. Instead, we know that the holiness of God is loving, that the righteousness of God is loving, the justice of God is loving. Because everything God does in one way or another does express his love. But love requires relationship. That simple statement that God is love is the most powerful evidence of the Trinity that there is. Because you cannot have love if there is only one being, if there is only one person. Love has to be expressed. It has to be shared. And when you look at the, the God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, what you see is they are honoring one another constantly. The Father is always pointing to the Son and saying, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And Jesus, the Son, is always pointing and honoring the Father because he loves him. And the Holy Spirit is drawing people into this relationship with him and he is elevating Jesus and the Father. You see, they love one another so they promote one another continually. That's their relationship. That's the nature of who they are. And all through the scriptures, we see how this love is displayed for God the Father, to God the Son, to God the Holy Spirit. They always promote one another. It is like the deep springs that feed the ocean from which the waters of earth find their source. That's where our love comes from. God's relationship is that fountain. And you are invited into this ocean deep love relationship through faith in Jesus Christ. As such, when we trust in him, we are united into this relationship, we become one with Christ, given his identity, his righteousness, his access into this love relationship, into this union that we have been given as a perfect gift, nothing that we earn, but a perfect gift of love given to us. And it is the most beautiful thing in all of the universe. St. Augustine, when he was trying to explain the Trinity, um, this is where he, he landed. In the essence, he said that God the Father is the lover, Jesus the Son is the beloved, and the Holy Spirit is the love that they share. Does that work perfectly? Probably not, but it gives us an understanding that the relationship is absolutely essential. Love without relationship does not exist. Now, it's important that we not turn this upside down. 
It is a totally different thing to say that love is God than it is to say that God is love. Because you see, then we're taking one attribute, one aspect, and we are, ex- we are um, magnifying it out separate from every other attribute of God. God is holy and God is love. And those two work in perfect balance in, in his being. But we must recognize that he is both. Because if we only examine the love of God, it will lead us to universalism. It will lead us to license where we feel like we can do anything. And we'll forget that God is holy. Because the scripture reveals many other things about God. One of the things that it says in Hebrews that is that he is a consuming fire. His righteousness is so pure, so perfect. He is so holy that to go into his presence as sinners without the covering of Jesus Christ would be to be consumed. This is why you see in Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah is approaching um, the throne room of the Lord, he recognizes and he says, Woe, I am undone. I am coming apart. I am a man of unclean lips and a people of unclean lips. He recognizes his own sinfulness, his own worthiness, because he is encountering the burning, brilliant, consuming fire of God's holiness. But God in his love, in the case of Isaiah, sends forth an angel there in Isaiah 6 with a burning coal that touches him, and he gives Isaiah a piece of his righteousness. It is a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do for us in clothing us in his righteousness so that we can enter into this union with God. So John in his writing is very precise when he says, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. He's showing us the source and he's, he's making sure that we understand the, the correct um, format in which we are to understand God's love and not to get it out of balance because great problems come when we try to say that love is God when we try to use situational ethics for instance to justify our our positions this is because love does not define every aspect of who God is but it is an incredibly important aspect of his being so maybe, maybe a good way to, to do this, if we were to think about it from, the, um, from a human viewpoint, love comes from God's DNA. It is the source code that, he's been given, that has been given to us in being made in the image of God. It's not every attribute, just like one strand of DNA, one set of information only tells us some part of who we are, but it is a very vital part. And we have been given this beautiful gift of love. So let's look and see what it says next. We know the source comes from from God. What does he say in verse 9? In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, how many of you, how many have used propitiation this week in a sentence? Anybody? Anybody even know what it is, what it means? Okay, okay. Preston does. That's, 
it's good. Should we, should we, should we quiz him? Yeah. Uh, okay. What, what, what's it mean, Preston? Excellent. Sacrifice that turns away wrath. Spot on. In fact, I think I wrote down almost exactly the same thing. So good, good job. But what we have here in this passage, in these next verses, is the proof of God's love. God doesn't just say that he loves you. He proves it beyond a shadow of a doubt in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. God has made his love for you manifest. And the word manifest means to make known. He's put it on display so that you can see it, so you can handle it, so you can understand it, so you can grab a hold of his love and have it be something that touches you. He has made it known for everyone to see and to know just how much he loves us. Now, this, this Greek word manifest is the word phanero, and it means to make something know or to shine a light on something, something that was hidden before. God's love was always there, but it wasn't seen with the brilliance that we could truly understand it until we see the person of his son, Jesus Christ, and especially his sacrifice on the cross. That's what put it on display in the most brilliant way where we could see that God truly does love us. Not because we earn it, not because we're good in and of ourselves, but because love comes from him and it is in his nature to pour out his love towards us. And he simply invites us to receive his love and to trust in what Jesus has done. That's the beauty of our faith. So to demonstrate his love, he sent his son. Now I want you to think about the power of that statement for just a moment. I want you to think for a moment, who in your life would you say you love the most? Maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's your children, maybe it's your parent, maybe it's a, a sister or, or, or a brother, maybe it's a friend that you just, man, you just connect so, so well. Can you imagine giving their life for someone else? You see, it's one thing to think about whether or not you would be willing to sacrifice your life for someone. But it's something different for me to think about sacrificing the life of my wife for someone else. It's dramatically different. But God took it a step further. You see, Jesus is the one he loves the most. There, there is no one he is closer to in all of the universe than his son. They're united with the same nature, the same character, the same being, but unique persons, and their love is absolutely immeasurable. But God didn't just sacrifice his son, as we read in John 3.16. He sacrificed his son for his enemy. Can you imagine giving the life of your child or of your spouse or of your family member or your friend for your enemy? To rescue them. What kind of love is that? That's the kind of love God has for you. Because God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, it says in Romans 5, 8, and then verse 10, it, it just underlines that by saying, while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. That's how much God loves you. So he has truly put it on display and there is no reason why you should ever walk out of this room today 
and not realize God loves you. You may not have received it. You may not have accepted it. But the evidence is absolutely profound because he gave the highest price for you and for me. And he gave his son just as as Preston said, as a propitiation, it's an idea of sacrifice that turns away wrath. The wrath of God, the judgment of God that we deserved, he not only gave the life of his son to rescue us, he placed on his son the full weight of judgment that you and I deserve. That is love. That is real love unimaginable love that God has for you and I, that he would be willing to do that for us. How deep the Father's love for us truly is immeasurable. Let's look at the next verses. Verse 11. Beloved. And I love how how John is writing because he has a pastoral heart. And he says, Beloved. If God so loved us, we ought to love one another. The natural outcome of recognizing how much God loves us really can only produce one thing. That's love for others. To reflect the same kind of love he's poured out on us should be the natural result, the fruit of our lives, that we love others. And then look at verse 12, because this is absolutely amazing. No one has ever seen God That statement almost seems out of place in the context of what he's saying. It's like he's changing subjects. God's invisible. What does that have to do? But look what it says. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. In other words, what he's saying is is that when we love others like God loves us, we make God known. We show who he is. And he has given us not just a command that Jesus gave to us that we love one another as God loved us. He's given us this incredible opportunity to show the world around us what God is like. And it is not by our programs. It's not by our, our, the legislation that we may back. All those things are, are fine and good. But if they don't have love at the very heart and fuel upon which they burn, they are worthless. Because love is what makes God known. The proof that we belong to Jesus is found in how we love others. If you really want to know for sure, am I saved? You're wrestling with that question. The thing to examine in your heart is, Lord, show me if you've changed my heart towards others. Because the evidence is in how I love others. If that has changed, then the Holy Spirit is working in you And if you're beginning to love others sacrificially the way God loves you, you have great confidence that your faith is real. That's what John wants us to know. And he wants us to make it known to others. This is our highest call, to make God known. And it requires that we love sacrificially as a servant, just like Jesus Christ, towards others. And when we do, his love is perfected in us. It means to be made mature. It doesn't mean that it's absolutely um, perfect in the sense that there's nothing ever that we do wrong. It means mature. The perfection or maturity of love 
is what God gives to us when we reflect back his love. Look what it says in verses 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. That word abide means to live in. Or if, if, you're, um, if you're an outdoor enthusiast, it means to camp means to pitch your tent and this is where you stay. Beside this beautiful little river, that's where your heart is at home. You abide in God's love. That's your home. Verse 17, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. Do you see what he's saying there? God has chosen you to make him known. Just as the scripture tells us that Jesus came to make the Father known full of grace and truth that we read in John chapter one, he's chosen us, now his church, his followers, to make God known in our midst. And he does it through the fuel of our love upon which God's glory burns. And he wants us to have great confidence. We need to understand that we are free from sin and we need not fear the judgment of God. That's what he tells us in John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me, this is Jesus, has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. When we put those verses together, we discover that belief is measured by love. And when our faith, as shown through, the, through love, is mature, we do not fear judgment because we are secure in Jesus and what he has done for us. We're reminded continually through the scripture, like in first, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians 5.10, that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. But our confidence is not in our accomplishment, but in the love of God that he has for us that we are then to reflect towards others. So what happens? When love is matured within you, when it, when it begins to form your faith, it conquers fear. Look at verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So how are you doing? If you were to put a meter to measure your fear, how high would it go? When you think of the anxieties that you have in in your life, the things that worry you, that concern you, How high up does that fear meter go? If true love casts out fear, what our fear should do is reveal areas where we are not trusting in God. Because here's here's the ultimate thing. Fear is all about not being in control. When I'm not in control, I'm fearful. But here's the thing, I'm not in control. 
I don't have to be in control, but I can trust in the one who is. And when I believe that he truly loves me for who I am, and he has a plan and a purpose for my life and for your life, I can allow that love that he has for me, his goodness, to cast out fear so that I can be confident in what I do. And here's here's the thing. There is no place safer in all of the universe than in the center of God's will for your life. Even if that takes you into very dangerous circumstances, even if it costs you your life, if it is in his will, it is the safest place because he has promised that he will never leave us and never forsake us. Therefore, we can use our fear to actually examine areas where we're not trusting God. We're not allowing him to be on the throne and instead we're seeking to take control and to exercise our own ability, our own effort rather than trust in him, his goodness, his power, and his plan. Our love should cast out the fears of others as well. When we love others unconditionally, as God loves us, it breaks down preconceptions, it breaks down prejudice, it breaks down walls, and it allows a relationship to be formed so that they can see who God truly is. You see, when we're absolutely confident that God loves us, it changes to where instead of being fearful about sharing our faith with others, we become expectant. Not because we have all the answers, but because God loves that person. And God's beginning to create in me a love for that person. And and so therefore, if I love them and God loves me and, and I want them to experience God's love, then I naturally want to share with them who God is and what he has done. It takes fear completely out of the circumstances. And it's so amazing when we really think about what God has given us in the power of love. You see, our love is to be a reflection of God's love. A few weeks ago, I I used a a mirror to kind of shine some light on you and just remind you. It won't work as well because I don't have as bright a light this time. But that this is what we're meant to do is we're meant to reflect God's love into the lives of others. Maybe a better way to show that is I want to put some pictures up. Um, I want you to think about the Hubble telescope, okay? And so we're just going to put some pictures up. I don't know how well those will show with the ambient light. We may turn that light out maybe, and the screen will be a little brighter. But play the little video clip there uh, of images from deep space where the Hubble telescope that's out there in space is able to collect light and it has all these mirrors and it's able to absorb all these, this light that's coming into it and it really is good. I'm telling you, the pictures are amazing as soon as they get there. Um, if not, imagine that. You know, think of the opening of Star Wars. You, know, you can hear, there you go. You can hear the music playing in the background even though it's not. Here are pictures of the, of the galaxy. And what it's doing is it's collecting light that is millions of light years away into these mirrors. 
And then that image is being, is being beamed back down to earth so that we can see it. That's what God is doing through his church. He's shining forth his light on you, on your life. He's shining and pouring forth his love into you so that we can show others what God is like. This infinite, amazing being who is unfathomable to our minds. He is making himself known. Just like the Hubble telescope is making known to us the depths and beauty of God's creation in the far distant galaxies. That's what God wants to do through you and through me. Do you begin to see why he chose the church? Why he chose us collectively to be just like all those hundreds and and maybe even thousands of mirrors that are on the Hubble telescope, each one gathering light so it can reflect back the love of God into the lives of others. That's what he's called us to be. And it's incredibly beautiful. It's an incredible privilege how his love through us reveals his character and his nature. But it not only does that, tells us that love is greater than fear. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. I want you to think about that for a moment because we fear what we don't understand and what we fear we seek to control. The truth is there are millions of lives all around us who live in fear. There is so much that is outside of human control that when something unexpected like a virus that is unseen, looms into the news, the natural response is fear. And we seek to take control because we're unwilling to trust that God is in control. Now understand that when I say that, God also gave us wisdom. He gave us understanding. He's, He's shown us that there are some things that are wise to do when it comes to things like disease. You know, that you should limit the exposure that you have to these, to, to viruses, to bacteria, to germs. That's why he's taught us to wash our hands. Even in, in the ceremonies that, um, that take place in the festivals, washing hands was a big part of it, in part because it's representing that our hearts need to be clean before the Lord, and in part because it has a practical application. God was teaching his people from the very beginning, long before they ever knew what a germ was or a virus or a bacteria, that the most important thing you can do is wash your hands. Okay? It, it is common sense, but it's a good reminder. And so we need to be wise when we face things like a virus. We need, to, in fact, even when we, have, when we celebrate Lord's Supper together, we recognize that the, the communicability, that's a great word that I can barely say, and I'm so glad that I actually got it out. I'm not going to try to say it again. Just imagine what I said. Um, that there's things you should do to, to limit that. So our servers will have gloves and they'll drop the bread in your hand just because we want you to be safe. We, we don't want to give extra opportunities for germs to share. We want to be wise but we don't want to be fearful. Now, here's a great example. One of the things that has inspired me for many, many years, and it's inspired me, my wife would tell you, it's inspired me to do crazy, stupid, dangerous things. That would be the word. She might occasionally have used one of the other words. It's inspired me to do some some difficult things in my life. 
In AD 52, there was a plague that swept through Carthage and Alexandria in northern Africa that was incredibly devastating. In fact, the description, let me read to you some of the description of this plague. This is from Pontius of of Carthage, and he wrote a, a description of the plague. He says this, Afterwards, there broke out a dreadful plague, an excessive destruction of a hateful disease invaded every house in succession of the trembling populace, carrying off day by day with abrupt attack numberless people, everyone from his own house. All were shuddering, fleeing, shunning the contagion impiously exposing their own friends as if the exclusion of the person who was sure to die of the plague. One could exclude death itself also. In other words, they they just, they ignored people. They would let people die in the streets. There lay about meanwhile over the whole city, no longer bodies, but the carcasses of many. And by the contemplation of, of a lot, which in their turn would be theirs. In other words, everyone expected to die. Demanding pity of the passerbyers for themselves, but no one regarded anything besides his own cruel gains. No one trembled at the remembrance of a symbol event, and no one did to another what he himself wished to experience. Here's what that means in a little more modern language. It means they were looting, they were... They, they were only focused in on themselves. And, and so compiling on the deadliness of this disease, and most historians, when you, when you look at it, they believe this was something very similar to Ebola. It was a hemorrhagic fever that swept through these cities. And it was absolutely devastating until something happened in the church. Cyprian was the bishop of Carthage. And in his studies in the word, he ran across a passage in Philippians that talked about Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus, it is said, risked his life out of love for the church at Philippi. And the word that was used there in describing Epaphroditus in the original language in Greek was uh, was paralaba. And and from that, you get the the noun, the paraboloni. And it simply meant the risk takers. And so Cyprian and his church chose instead of fleeing the city which everyone else who was still able to do was trying to do which of course spread the disease further they went into the city and they went in and they cared for those who had died and buried their bodies and they ministered to those who were sick and they cared for them and it became so acquainted with the love response of of Cyprian and the church that they actually named the plague. Now in history, it's called Cyprian's plague. Not that he caused it, but because of the response of God's people in caring for others. Now, why do I tell you that story? Well, I don't think the coronavirus compares to the plague in Carthage. Um, Is it serious? Absolutely. Should we take precautions? Yes. But we live in a world that is broken and that is hurting and that often is fearful. And so what God would call us to do is to be his hands and his feet and showing forth his love. Anytime there are difficulties, there are crises that happen in our world, 
our first response should be, Lord, would you show us how to shine forth your love into the lives of those who are fearful. Be wise, but also be expectant that God may use this to draw people to an eternal life, not just an escape from a disease. You see, that's what happened in Northern Africa. The response of God's people in loving others at risk of their own life caused a revival of people coming to faith in Christ. Why? Because they saw the love of God on display. A love that would step into brokenness, into fear, and show that they cared about each individual. So we need to pray for our medical workers and we need to walk alongside of them and encourage them. And we need to, to look for ways, Lord, how would you use me? In the midst of time where there's uncertainty, and it may not be about a virus, it may be other areas of fear because we have all have all kinds of fears that we, we wrestle with. But when we begin to see people's fears as opportunities to show them the love of Christ, to stand with them, not to judge them, but to stand with them, to walk beside them, and to love them as God loves them, he will do great and beautiful things. Because you see, true love, perfect love, casts out fear. For the life of believers, God in his word tells us time and again that we are not to fear to not be afraid. In fact, from Genesis to Revelation, 76 times it says specifically, fear not. The reason that we don't fear is not because we're in control, but because we understand the love that God has for us. That's why the safest place that we can be is in the center of his will. No matter what the circumstances are, no matter what we face, We can trust in him. So let me give you, I put in your bulletins just some thoughts to think about your reactions to determine if your heart, if you're driven by a heart of love or areas where your life is maybe controlled by a mind of fear. And and there's simply just some, some contrasts because when we're resting in a heart of love, when we're growing mature and understanding the love that God has for us, It is based upon truth. Whereas our fears are almost always based upon either lies or partial truths. That it's not all the information. So the first thing we need to do is to look for truth. And we live in an age where truth is becoming harder and harder to find because there's so much information out there, it's hard to discern. But the truth we can rely on is that God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. A heart of love will be authentic with others, whereas a mind of fear will cover up our own weaknesses and it results in hypocrisy. Am I being genuine with others? If not, fear is at work in my life. And I need to go to the Lord and say, Lord, would you change me? Would you help me to trust in your love? A heart of love, knowing that God loves us so incredibly, rests in peace. Where a mind of fear 
often strives in anxiety. A heart of love lives in freedom. A mind of fear seeks to control. A heart of love is accepting of others where they are. A mind of fear is judgmental towards others because we're seeking control. And you can read down through the list and you'll see just distinctives that happen. And I want to encourage you to allow the Holy Spirit to examine your heart. Not so you feel guilty, so you can be set free. Because God wants to cast that fear out of your life and allow you to rest absolutely secure in the power and beauty of his love. Perfect love casts out fear. Fear comes from absence of control. But if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, then it proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is in absolute, complete control. What we celebrate in the Lord's Supper is we celebrate his death, his burial, and his resurrection. That he has conquered everything you and I have to fear. He has conquered sin. He has conquered death. And he offers us eternal life through faith in him. He is in control. He is the one that we can trust with every aspect of our life. So let me conclude with this. Some people think that the greatest evidence of God's presence or work is power. There are some that that think if we saw more miracles, more people would believe. And that would be great. But that's not the most powerful evidence for who God is and what he has done. Other people will think that the greatest evidence of God's presence or work is popularity. And if we just had more programs that attracted more people and maybe some more celebrities that that led the way, that then more people would come to faith in Christ. And I'm glad for the ones that we have. But neither of those are nearly as powerful as reflecting the love of God that he has shown to you into the life of another person. We are called to make God known by our love. That's what love has to do with the Christian life. We are making God known. The greatest evidence of God's presence and work is love. Where God is present, where he is working, there will be love. Real, sacrificial, serving love that looks just like Jesus Christ. He gave his life for us and he calls us to lay down our life in love for others. What we celebrate in communion is a feast that remembers God's love for us that he willingly sent his son for you and I. He gave the one he loved most for you. And Jesus willingly laid down his life for you. So you have evidence of God the Father, God the Son, and of the Holy Spirit who draws you that they love you with an immeasurable love. And when we come to communion, the Lord's Supper, we see represented in the bread and in the cup the love of God. That Jesus, the bread of life, was willing to lay down his life for you. He gave his body for you.
In the cup, we see the new covenant. We see his blood that he willingly poured out to cover over your sin and to clothe you in his righteousness. That's the beauty of communion. Would you bow with me? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. Would you help us to truly comprehend the magnitude of how you love us? Lord, so that we may express praise back to you and so that it may result in obedience and transformation in our heart and life and so that it will fuel us to love others as you have loved us. Lord, as we prepare our hearts to come to your table, let us do so remembering your sacrifice. Jesus, you told us, you commanded us to do this in remembrance of you. And so it is in remembrance of what you have done and of who you are that we joyfully come to the table to receive the bread that represents your body given for us and the cup that represents your blood that was shed for us. Lord, we willingly receive a reminder of this new covenant, this promise that you have given to us, a love that you have proven to us. Lord, reveal in us fear, reveal in us sin that would hinder our our intimacy with you so that we may confess it and turn from it and trust more fully in who you are and what you are doing in us and will do through us. We give thanks to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. The scripture says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said to his disciples, This is my body, which is given for you. Lord, this bread represents the gift of your life, your body that was given for us. Lord, as we partake of this bread, we ask that you would bless it and that you would bless us. Remind us of the greatness and of the depth of your love for us as we partake, as we do this in remembrance of you. The scripture also tells us that in the same way he took the cup and after he had blessed it, he shared it with his disciples after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord, thank you for the cup that represents your life being poured out for us. Your blood covering over our sin and clothing us in your righteousness. Thank you for your love that you have demonstrated that you continually remind us of as we celebrate communion together. Lord, let this be a beautiful time of remembrance of your goodness, of your sacrifice, and of your love. We ask your blessing upon the cup and upon each person that partakes. May they have a fresh awareness of your love for them and if your call upon their life, we pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.